Accounting firm owners, if your firm can only grow as fast as you can find the time to take on new clients, you're not alone. Fortunately, Dark Horse CPAs has built a platform-style CPA firm that will transform your practice. It has the technology, resources, staffing, qualified inbound leads, and community that will enable you to spend your time growing your practice, serving clients, and doing more of what you love. Stay tuned to learn more about how Dark Horse CPAs is saving public accounting one firm at a time. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where we look at white-collar criminals rather than blood-spattered collared criminals. My name's Greg Kite. And my name is Caleb Newquist. Uh, and Caleb Newquist, uh, I want to start today's episode by talking about magic. Uh, specifically, oh. I want to know your attitudes about magic. I want to know if mm-hmm. you've gone to a magic show or seen okay. a, a street performer, magician, or even mm-hmm. better, I want to know if you've ever done magic tricks yourself. Okay. A lot going on there. I'll do my best. <laughs> I'm pro magic. Love magic. Nice. I haven't been. I haven't been to a lot of magic shows. Like I've been to Vegas many times, but I've never been to a magic show. I feel like that's something I need to do in the future. Okay. I've seen street magicians many times, of course. But I think the biggest thing that lives in my brain, as far as magic is concerned, like most exennials, have you heard this term? Exennials is that is that like a dumb way to say Generation X? No. It's a it's a it, the Oregon Trail generation. Maybe that's helpful for people listening. Okay. I don't know, but there's this very there's this sub generation in between Generation X and millennials. Oh, okay. And there, I looked it up because I didn't know I didn't know if it had a name or not. But apparently, it's called Xennials, which is very stupid. <laughs> but anyway, uh. I'm in this kind of sub generation. And anyway, so the point I'm trying to make here is people that are around my age and older. I think you'll remember this. But I have very fond memories of watching David Copperfield performing illusions on TV. Yeah, um, in the eighties, and I remember, I remember too, especially vividly. I remember when he made the Statue of Liberty disappear, uh-huh. and then I, I remember when he walked through the Great Wall. Of China. And I, okay, so I yeah. remember both of those two, uh, and I hated okay. both of them. Because, oh. No, but here's why: because they it was too large of a scale, and they were on TV. And I'm like going, I see uh, all sorts of things on TV that's like special effects in movies and stuff like that. So I was like going, this doesn't impress me. It just seems like movie special effect. I'm sure it was fantastic if you were there live. I felt like the scale made it unbelievable to where it's just like, ah, it's just a TV, just a TV. That's interesting hack. because as a very, I was very young, you know, in the in the mid '80s. So like. Just the fact that I just like, whoa, how did how you know, it's just like you don't even know I, your brain. I was in like my exploding. mid 40s in the 80s, so I was very, oh. I I could see through the uh, the whole you're aging well, you're aging well, yeah, thanks. Um, what else? So, me also very pro magic, love it. Yep, strangely enough, I I got like my my whole interest and enthusiasm for magic got goosed. Uh, through a comedy open mic that I go to regularly to practice my stand-up comedy, there was uh, this horrible open mic, tiny, in this really weird club that's hard to get to. And there was a guy who wasn't a comedian, but he was a magician who would come to the comedy open mics to practice his magic tricks. And oh, he was he was the most awkward, like he was a super awkward, like just his personality was kind of hard to wrap your brain around. But his tricks were amazing amazing they were so i mean some of them were were not but some of them were just like oh my gosh that's that was brilliant please do that and and he and then i actually hired him to do magic at my very next birthday party that i did oh because that's how and they and so he did a bunch of stuff here that was phenomenal and super fun that's fun what's up that's fun 
Okay, so so next question. When it comes to yes. magic, there, there's two types of people. There's people okay. who obsess about how the magician did the trick, and all they can do is mm. they're just trying to you know d- break the code for how they might have pulled it off. And then there's other yep. people who they're like, please, actually, don't I don't want to know because it's going to kill my magic buzz. Uh, which yeah. which side do you fall on with that? Yeah, I don't want to know. I I don't care how they did it. I I just like being wowed and being like in the moment of complete surprise and wonder. The rush of the excitement of the trick, like that's that's what I get. Right. I'm not. Yeah, that's I, I, to me. That's like you know, if you're if you're if you're just trying to figure it out, then yeah, that I don't know. That I don't I don't want to know. Right. I I just I just like I like the trick. I like the cleverness of it. I like the showmanship or the yeah, the of of magic, and uh, you know that's that, that's what I'm there for. Yeah, you know I'm not I'm not there to be like no oh, I've got a new puzzle to take home. Like no, I just want to be. <laughs> I want I want to be entertained. Yeah, Greg. exactly. A hundred percent. Me too. Right. So the whole reason we're talking about magic at all on our fraud podcast is because in today's podcast, we're going to meet a guy from the 1960s who was able to somehow trick the entire New York Stock Exchange into thinking that he had over 20 times the amount of inventory that he really had. How did he do it? Stick around and maybe you'll find out. So today we're diving into the famous salad oil scandal. I remember infamous, infamous, infamous. Yeah, the infamous. Yeah, not. I mean, yeah. Thanks for. Okay, yeah. There we go. Should I try it again? Okay. Today we're. uh, Yeah. Sure. Okay, fine. Today we're diving into the infamous salad oil scandal. Are you happy now, Caleb? Thrilled. Jesus. Thrilled. I, I remember first hearing about this case in like a first year accounting class when we were covering inventory audits or something like that. Caleb, when yep. when did you first hear about this case? I'm pretty sure the first time that I heard about this case is when it came up uh, between you and Francine McKenna uh. Uh, in an earlier episode of this illustrious podcast. I do not remember it in the context of a college course auditing or intermediate accounting or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I feel uh, a little. I, I feel like I missed out. It, I don't know. Well, but I, but you're filling in the gap now because we're because we looked into it. We know all about it at this point. Oh, um, what outstanding! One of the one of the first weird things for me about this case is I remember when my professor was talking about it, I thought the case happened like in the 1800s, but it actually turned out to be in the 1960s. And I partly wonder if that's because like the whole idea of like salad oil sounds like completely archaic that that was a thing, but apparently salad oil and, and when they say salad oil, they mean soybean oil, but yeah, when right. when when we're covering a class, I was like envisioning the cast of Newsies when I should have been like envisioning the hippies at Woodstock. Uh, right. I mean, like when I hear salad oil, I kind of think, oh, there was a time where there was something other than ranch dressing. I guess I just right. <laughs> like I, I mean, I don't know. I, I and I don't even like ranch dressing, right. but I mean, it's so kind of uh, ubiquitous. Yeah. That's all I can think about when I think about salad oil. Yeah, or or the or well, that's what comes to mind. Nevertheless, yeah, the great salad oil, infamous salad oil scandal, Greg. Yeah. So why I wonder why I wonder why it's become like or it must have been like the 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 archetype of fraud for a while in college cl- classrooms. Right. Well, I think and I I think what it is is it, it's a great example of of how people can can magically manipulate their inventory to to screw people over and that's yeah that's what happened because because this guy so we're so the main guy in our story his name's anthony deangelis he goes by tino which and i'll tell you this guy he looks like a character right out of the god the pictures i see he looks like a character straight out of the godfather he does. Um, I saw the picture. There's some other one. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those, if he smiles just right, he kind of looks like a fun, like a like a happy grandpa. Right. But if he's right. not smiling, he he looks like. I mean, the guys in the gra- the guys in the Godfather, you know, had they had moments where you're like, oh, he might be a nice grandpa. 
like, no. right, right. Uh, Cold-blooded killer. Right, and then... But this isn't one of those podcasts. Right, it's not. But but also with a name like uh, Tino DeAngelis and being born in the Bronx in 1915. <laughs> right. That's what... That, mm. This guy, early 1900s. Again... Very, very, yeah. very much a Godfather vibe coming off of this guy from from some yep. of this stuff that we saw. Okay, so 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 he was born in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. What else? Tell us about Tino. Uh, okay, Greg. so here's his pre-salad oil fraud. I still think is incredibly interesting. So so the dude he dropped out of school at the age of seventeen. So we're talking about 1932. He drops out of school. Okay. And leaves school for what they say is economic reasons. I think he probably just, you know, the family needed some money. He started working as a meat cutter at the Adolf Goebel Company, which is the weirdest name for any company in the entire world because it sounds like a joint venture between Adolf Hitler and Joseph Go- Goebbels. As I was, I don't know my, those are two. You don't know your Nazi surnames I very well? I don't watch the History Channel enough. I think it's Goebbels. Is it, Ge- is it Goebbels? It might be Goebbels. Goebbels. Regardless, yeah. you see what I'm saying? His I mean, meat, co- meat cutter company was Adolf Goebel Company. and I Yeah, I mean, pre-World War II, though, I mean, they were just Nazis, dude. <laughs> they were just not Right, like, and, and pre-World War II, Adolf was just another first name. So, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, but, but he, uh, apparently he excelled at meat cutting at this, uh, you know, strangely, you know, pre-Nazi yet Nazi (laughs) meat cutting company. And in three years he rose up to become a a foreman and he was supervising over 200 people at this, at this company. So I think that shows that the guy knows how to do a job. He knows how to be a manager. Cut some meat. Cut some meat, probably. Yeah, well, but not just that, because you're. I mean, just if oh, you're a okay. good meat cutter, you're not going to get supervising two hundred people. He's he's got some. True. He's got some managerial skills. He's got some business acumen to get up there, and and it and and I don't have a timeline for this, but he eventually, over the course of time, he took over the Adolf Goebel Meat Cutting Company, and okay, and, and what happened? So this was. Uh, so yeah, so he it was about 1935 when he became a foreman. We I don't I didn't never I wasn't able to find a date when he took over the 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 meat cutting company, but I do know that in 1946, uh, the United States passed the National School Lunch Act, which is still a, a law that's on the books today. And wow. but it was passed right about this time. <laughs> and apparently, when the law was first passed, the government would pretty much buy any meat to shove down the gullet of a student in a public school, as long as mm. the meat hit the right price point for the national school lunch act, which to me just floods me with images of lunch lady Doris in the Simpsons and, and all the different meats that they would have come in the back door of Springfield elementary school. Are you, are you, are you following me on that? I 100% am following nice. you. Yeah. And, so, and it even it takes me back to even my own school lunch cafeteria. Oh, yeah? But, uh, yeah, it just kind of makes me wonder what we were eating <laughs> how, a little bit. How, how low that price point might have been for your uh, French mm-hmm. dip sandwich. <laughs> oh, there were no French dips, Oh, my friend. Oh. That would have been, yeah. Well, in Western oh, Washington, in, man, in we Seattle, had French Seattle, dip with In Seattle, Aju. Washington. At your at your high school? No, at my elementary school. But it, they were horrible. It was like think oh. of like Arby's meat, but worse. And that's what. And it's like here's some here's some really really salty uh, juice to dip it in to maybe cover up the horrible taste of the of the 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 meat block that we shoved of the, inside of, the, of a Kaiser roll of the grade F. Meat it was not that good. Was on your that was not that was not the day I liked school lunch. So. Anyways, right. so he so he finds out that they've got this school national school lunch national act. school lunch check hit the price point the government will buy your your uh, your your meat and so he he sold the government just a shit ton of substandard and unexpected meat at at an inflated price meaning he still met their price point but for what he was selling them it was way too much money as a matter of fact it says that in this is in today's dollars he overcharged the program by $337,000 for the meat that he sold them and and they couldn't even use the meat that's how bad the meat was 
that he sold to the National School Lunch Act. So that's definitely what they just kept in a in a refrigerator and fed to me as French dip uh, later in the 1970s. So just to I mean that stuff freezes. It does. Uh, so. It does. And uh, and and the Adolf Goebel company, they were obviously we wouldn't know about this if they weren't caught. They were caught. They were fined over a million dollars again. That's a million dollars in today's money uh, adjusted for inflation. So they were they were fined about three times the amount that they built the government out of. And uh, Adolf Goebel was prohibited from bidding on cover, uh, government contracts before that. So that was that was the oh. scandal that Tino DeAngelis did before we even get into anything involving. So soybean oil. So he seems to have a knack for food. He do, he does. Yeah. yeah, I think that's okay. well. And you got to think. I mean, and we'll see this. The soybean oil thing. It kind of follows a similar pattern to what we see with the um, lunch lady Doris scam with the National School Lunch Act. All right. So all this stuff happens. The and as a matter of fact, the Adolf Goebel company they they declare bankruptcy. They go out of business. But Tino, he he lands on his feet, and it, shortly thereafter, in 1955, he starts a new company called the Alloyed, sorry, Allied Crude Vegetable Oil Refining Company. Which even that's weird because, like, I think of crude oil not as something that you eat, but as something you make into gasoline. That's. Mm-hmm. There, did you have the same sense when you saw what he named his company? Yeah, it's 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 weird. It's a weird name for a company for sure. But you know, like in before kind of con- the contemporary age, how they named businesses was very very kind of like nondescript, like the General Electric Company. And you're like, "Oh, <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. There weren't as many businesses back then, but so they just gave him these very kind of either nondescript or kind of vague names like the American steel company. <laughs> right. Like, oh, right. That's a company. But yeah. So, but even this like allied crude vegetable oil refining company, like he, he said, well, we should just describe what the business does <laughs> and that's the name of the business. Right. And you're like, very, a very utilitarian yes. name. Should we, should we vote on it? <laughs> you know? And it's right. Like, <laughs> What what That's do we it. do? We refine vegetable oil from crude vegetable oil to less crude vegetable oil. So and, yes. and are we all and, allies? And we're, and we're in and we're incorporated. Right, right. exactly. <laughs> so done. Put it on it. Put it on a business card. It's got to be a, yes, a big yes. business card. Shall we? Shall we? Shall we hand out these stock certificates now? Let's hand out the, <laughs> the, stuff, the, the stock coupons. certificates. The bear down. coupons. Yes. <laughs> uh, so they. Uh, so they. Part of Tino's impetus for creating the alloyed crude al- I keep saying alloyed allied crude vegetable oil allied. refining company again it's a wor- it's a world just think world war 2 it's allies a- right. it's the allies it's the alli- except they're allies the, yeah it's not the uh, the axis the, that was the it's not the axis that was their it's not the axis crude vegetable oil company <laughs> that was their competition the axis crude <laughs> That's vegetable right. oil so so they so Tino, his whole idea for starting this company, from what I gathered, was because the United States, it's 1955, Europe is still recovering from World War II. There's a federal program in the United States called the Food for Peace Program, where food producers are able mm-hmm. to get into this program, and the program was meant to sell surplus food from the United States, sell the surplus to Europe to help them recover from World War II. So again, government program where you can sell your shitty product to people who who don't currently are desperate for it. Yeah, basically. whether that's third graders or whether that's post uh, Nazi Europe. And yeah, and, okay. And so Tino was like, "Awesome, I'm going to do that." And so he used that to sell substandard shortening overseas, uh, and that's that's and again apparently not a problem with that it was it was surplus because it was substandard apparently and so they send it over and some people got some shitty shitty margarine or something like that to cook their bangers and or mash and i don't know where he sold it yeah. to and that's uh that's how he started his business legitimately even though he was obviously taking advantage of federal program and advantage of people who really needed food in europe right all right 
Right. Yeah. I'm 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 following along mm-hmm. so far. So then following along. So then in 1962, so this is seven years after he starts the company. That's when Tino had this this uh, this like uh, this master my he masterminded a plan to make just a lot of money, and his plan was to try to corner the market on soybean oil and salad oil. What Tino's specific plan was was that he was going to start by, so he has a bunch of the salad oil he wants mm-hmm. to corner the market on salad oil so he's going to use his existing stores of salad oil as collateral to get loans and he's going to use the money yep. from the loans to buy not more soybean oil but to buy soybean oil futures right. so the idea is that when it so if he so basically that's the way that he's going to control all the soybean oil is he's going to buy so many futures that then eventually when he exercises those futures then he's got all the stuff so if anybody needs it at that point he knows what he can buy it for and he's like oh but I got all of it so you need to you need to pay me more than what I'm buying for it so and that's there's a specific name for that. Buying on a margin? Is that what that is? Yeah. So like, yeah. So like if you, yeah, you hear about it in, in trading businesses, but essentially that if you have, if you hold an asset and you want to buy more of an asset, but you want to borrow the money to buy it, you buy it on margin. Okay. So a bank will give you the money. And it, it's, it's typical like when some, when, when the prices of something are going up and up and up. Yeah. Right. Okay. Because you're because you, you the asset that you're putting up for collateral is increasingly valuable. Right? Yeah. And so the bank is like, oh great, this is a valuable asset. It keeps being valuable. Sure, we'll loan you some money so that you can go buy some more assets. Because gotcha. it's a safe bet. Into- it's a safe. Well, it's a safe loan if it's going. It's kind of like a home mortgages where typically yes, home prices go up. So it's a, so the bank's sitting pretty good. Exactly. Okay. And so I think we're going to explain. How this can be risky, right? Is that right? Greg? We are, but yeah. but it, but it's cool what you said. Like in terms of a, an asset that's looking in the future, like it's going to go up. So here's another weird thing mm-hmm. that was happening in the mid, early to mid 1960s, specifically in the soybean, the salad oil market. Is we're talking about the Soviet Union era in Europe. Yep. And yep. and so there was the Iron Curtain. And if you remember that or if you've studied that at all, you know that there was basically this this dividing line in Europe where if you were part of the Soviet bloc, you didn't do business with companies that with countries that were outside of the Soviet bloc unless there was some extenuating circumstances. And apparently there must have been those with soybean oil because there were there were rumors that the that Russia, that the Soviet Union was going to open its uh, soybean oil markets to non-Soviet bloc countries. So oh. there was a because of that they were like, going, oh, there's this huge market that we haven't been able to sell to that might open up, and then we can say we there's going to be so much supply and demand. There'd be so much more demand for this salad oil that we will be able to sell it at a higher price than what we would have before the other side of the Iron Curtain decides that they want to buy some of our uh, shit. Right? You with me? Right. Nice. So, so Tino wants to corner the market and he's got a certain amount of salad oil that he can leverage to buy more salad oil futures. But mm-hmm. to effectively corner the market, you have got to, it takes lots and lots of money to do that. Got to have the money to you do You got to have yep. a butt ton of money to do that. And so, uh, so what? So he had to borrow. So he had to borrow. He had to, it. He had to borrow it. And what he found, and, and and so here's here's another player in this whole thing is American Express. So American Express obviously been around for a long, long time. And in the 1960s, American Express had recently created a field warehousing division. That's what they called it. And the field warehousing division, what they would do is they would go out to companies and they they basically do the same thing that external auditors do right now with their inventory audits is they'd go out and you'd say, hey, I've got uh, 110 uh, million pounds 
of soybean oil, which, by the way, they measured soybean oil in pounds, not in gallons. I have no fucking clue why that is. Just measure it in gallons like a normal liquid, not but they did. They measured it in pounds. I don't know why. And so you say, hey, I got 110 million pounds of soybean oil. They come out, they, they, they inspect your stuff, and then they give you what's called a warehouse receipt that says, yes, according to American Express Field Warehousing Division, you indeed do have a 110 million pounds of soybean oil. And then Tino, once he got that for his soybean oil, he'd take that warehouse receipt to a bank or to a broker and, and that would substantiate that he indeed had 110 million pounds of soybean oil to use as collateral for loans, blah, blah, blah. Makes sense? Yep. Makes sense. Perfect. But he was yep. like, I need so if I can if I can borrow a certain amount of money with the amount of soybean oil that I've got, that's awesome. If I was able to say I had more than I've got, then I could borrow more money and I would be able to more effectively corner the market on salad oil or, or even be able to do it at all. Because obviously you need it's it's sort of like, do you ever play the game uh, uh, hearts, the card game hearts? Where yeah, you, sure. Where you shoot mm-hmm. the moon. Sure. It's kind of the same thing. You you can try right. to shoot the moon, uh, but you better be pretty sure you can do it, uh, or else yep. you, you just screw yourself. And I think yeah, you lose. I'm pretty sure cornering the markets is the same idea, where it's like you can get close to cornering the market, but not do it, and you can't really manipulate the price, and so you don't get to do what you wanted to do with your right. cornering the market thing. If you own an accounting firm, then you know the struggle. Trying to develop the right technology, the right people, the right marketing and pricing strategies, and the right SOPs while handling all of the one-off issues that come with being a business owner on top of your duty to deliver high-quality work amid pressing deadlines. To say it ain't easy is an understatement. Dark Horse knows that building a scalable practice requires a significant investment of your limited time and money in order to build the infrastructure that you need. And it requires you to be consistently sourcing, developing, and implementing new technologies in order to keep up with the marketplace. Instead of breaking your back trying to build a modern accounting firm, why not just join a firm that has already built what your practice needs to scale? Instead of trading your soul to merge into a giant traditional partnership model firm, why not join a firm that will allow you to keep your autonomy, retain ownership of your practice, and provide you with way more upside in a fast-growing progressive firm? Instead of trying to learn everything you need to know to serve your clients, with why not shortcut your learning curve by collaborating with a supportive group of experienced and knowledgeable peers at Dark Horse? There's a better way to evolve your practice. There's a better way to be a CPA. Dark Horse invites you to visit abetterway.cpa to learn why firms are moving their practice to Dark Horse CPAs. Okay, so let me see. Let me just recap okay. just briefly here. Please. So Tino, he's got uh, soybean oil. He's got it stored. Mm-hmm. American Express uh, field warehouse division people verify the existence of the soybean oil in these storage containers, and they give them a receipt and say, hey, this is issued by us. We're people like us. People say we're credible people yeah. or a credible company. So this is a thing. Don't lose it. <laughs> right. I don't know if it was actually a receipt. Right. But I'm gonna say like it was a, just a, it was a piece of paper. It was a scrap yeah. of paper. It's like don't <laughs> it's lose like this. a napkin. But yeah. The, so then, so then there's a thing where you 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 could walk into a bank, an investment bank, most likely. Uh-huh. You walk yeah. into an investment bank and be like, "Hey, you guys loan money, right?" He's like, "I've got this thing." I'm like, okay, we'll give you a lot of money. And so, and so then, then he wants to start snatching up the futures because as you pointed out, it's fine that he, it's fine that he owns soybean oil today, but if he wants to corner the market, the thing about commodities are, is you can trade, you can trade that commodity at a future date and time. Right. And so in order, but in order to do that, you got to have the capital, i.e. the liquidity, i.e. the cold, hard cash. 
to buy those futures. Right. Yeah. Not just to- if you buy enough of those in the in the whole plan, Tino's whole plan is if you can buy enough of those futures along with the stuff that he owns today, he's got the market cornered. Exactly. And that do have I been listening? You have, have been, been listening. listening. Yeah. You you <clears throat> totally nailed it. But but okay. so here's what happens, and here's where the, he oh. turns into a fraudgician is oh. that he was able to and and I so I dropped the number 110 million pounds of salad oil. That's what that's what Tino actually had. But as as a magician, as a close up magician, he was able to trick American Express into validating that he actually had 1.8 billion pounds of soybuno, not 110 million, but 1.8 billion pounds of soybean oil. How did he do it, Caleb? How did he do it? Any ideas? I don't know. Greg. Of course you have None. ideas because you read None. the cases. But oh, but and this is where and this is where I'm going to disappoint you and the listeners because you might just go, oh. oh my god, he was able to trick Amex into believing that he had way more. What a great magic trick! I'm going to be that guy who's like, no, let me tell you how the magic happened. <laughs> are you are you ready to for me right. to just destroy the the wonder in the world? I'm ready. Okay, so here's so and again. It's kind of awesome and it's kind of amazing in a way that it worked because it doesn't take a genius to know that oil and water don't mix. So one of the ways, one of his... Right, it's like one of the 10 commandments. Right, it is. Yeah, it's the 11th commandment. Thou shall not be able to mix uh, oil and water according to the laws of chemistry and physics. And so, so he would... so So Tino would literally have tanker ships that were supposedly full of salad oil that would be at dock and these Amex inspectors would go to certify the cargo that it's really the amount, you know, the bill of lading for how many ever, you know, millions of gallons of salad oil on this, on this Pounds, ship. Great. Pounds, Pounds, Pounds. Thank you. Still so stupid, but all these millions of pounds in the ship and they would go. And, and what Tino had done is that he had, he had actually filled up the ships almost entirely with water, not with salad oil, but just left like a thin layer of salad oil on top of it. And he'd go, Hey, come look at all my salad oil. And they'd like dip their finger in it and lick their finger and go sure. Tastes like soybean oil to me. Boom. Here's your, uh, your warehouse receipt for all of this when it was really mostly just water is what he did. And that was his illusion that he cast over the Amex field warehousing inspectors. Brilliant. Did the, did the same thing. Well, he did. He did the So he, yep. he did the same thing in his warehouse because there was the ships. He also had tanks in his warehouse and he did the same thing there where he would do it. But you got to think. So if he's, if he's done this, He's he's already risking a lot because it's not like guaranteed that they couldn't figure it out. Because let's say they just got an extra deep ladle or something, don't you? Right. I mean, he must have been he must have been sweating it a little bit, at least when he first started doing that. Well, if I may, there was I in one of the old articles that I found about this story. It was an old New York Times article. Water being present was not unusual. Okay, like whether in, especially in the tanks, I think if I understand it right, like the storage, because condensation would uh, collect. Okay, and it would kind of mix in with the oil, mm-hmm. right? So the mere presence of water was not like somebody would be like that. That wasn't like the smoking gun where people like hold everything. There's water in these tanks. <laughs> right. Uh, notify the authorities. It wasn't like that. Like the 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 head of American Express, I believe it was, um, when he was testifying in in uh, in a case uh, after this all unwound, was saying that the the that wasn't necessarily the red flag that you might think it is. But to the extent, but you're right. Like if it's conceivable that someone would have been inspecting this tank and said, "There's a lot more water here than." Like if somebody knew what they were doing, yeah, right? and they knew how to inspect it properly, yeah. they would probably find out. It's like, uh, yes, water is possible, but not seventy-five percent. Ninety-five percent. This is ninety-five percent condensation. <laughs> it was a long boat trip 
from right. the soybean oil producing companies to New Jersey. So yeah, it's going to be 95% con- condensation. I guess you don't know the soybean oil business like Mr. Tino. Why don't you let why don't you leave it to the professionals here, okay? <laughs> exactly. They really know exactly. soybean oil. Okay. Okay. Which, okay, so that's and again, clearly uh Tino, I mean, he was in the business. It, it's not like his entire business was just smoke and mirrors. He was a legitimate trader of salad oil. So he, right. so he knew his shit about salad oil clearly and, and substantiated by what you just said. The other thing though, in terms of his magic trick with the salad, and I think this is even funner than the, than the, you know, the, the, the oils floating on top of a bunch of water is that also in his warehouses, he would have different, tanks different storage tanks for his salad oil in there and he actually built this system of pipes and this is why i'm thinking magic trick because when people do mm-hmm. reveal how how magic trick works it's sometimes it's just this where it's like gosh you you really put a lot of effort into making this magic trick work but obviously tino had a lot at stake and this was how we made it happen he built a system of pipes between his different tanks of soybean oil in as well so if an inspector so an inspector is going to the first tank and they look at it and go oh yeah this is full of salad oil and then they go okay well follow us over to the other side of the uh of the warehouse where our other tank is and then they'd like give the thumbs up to the worker who'd turn the spigot who would that would drain that tank and would <laughs> pump it into the other tank on the other side of the warehouse in just in time for them to step up to the top of the ladder to look in that vat of salad oil and go oh yep this one's also full of salad oil and they were like ta-da and that's because they were they were fucking doing close-up magic with their salad yeah. oil is what they were doing yeah yeah so it it was amazing, uh, elaborate uh, magic uh, salad oil magic tricks. But some of the other things that were crazy about this is that Amex and and I and I believe part of the reason going back to the beginning, why is this brought up for accounting students who went to like good accounting colleges, mm-hmm. not Nebraska Accounting Institute where you, you went to? Was it? Did you? Are you a graduate of the uh, Nebraska Accounting Institute, the NIA and NAI? NAI. NAI. Yeah. Nebraska County yeah. Institute. Because I, I don't think it's I, that's I, it. It's not it's not accredited. Um, but to accredited <laughs> schools like like my school, Utah Valley University, uh okay. they taught us about uh, very important cases that changed how how shit gets done in accounting. And and this would one of the things that was a problem with these Amex inspect, inspections is that they were always scheduled. There was never a surprise inspection that because if they just showed up one day and were like, hey, I need to see in this vat right over here, then they'd be like, oh, no, that's the empty vat. We can't shoot. You fit. You found us out. But it was always like, oh, we're going to do this. And here's how we go through it. And it was very it was very uh, routine and everybody knew mm. the routine and that's why Tino was able to play Amex in terms of, you know, manipulating the routine to to do his magic tricks. So that was a big part of it right there. Okay. The other the other thing that was very interesting that was like a big like failure on the point of American Express when they were doing this is that at one point in the in the course of this scam the American Express inspectors guaranteed through their warehouse receipts, they guaranteed that Tino DeAngelis, an allied crude vegetable oil refining company, that they they were holding more salad oil in their facility than the Department of Agriculture said existed in the entire United States. So if they had just done a little bit of like (laughs) vetting of their numbers to publicly accessible documents published by the Department of Agriculture, they go, hmm, that's weird that Tino has more salad oil than than exists in our entire country right now. And they could have been exposed to that. So I and I don't know if Tino knew that. I don't know if his butt was puckered up because he knew he could get caught that way. I assume he probably didn't know that. What's your what's your guess on that, Caleb? Yeah, probably not. I mean, I don't think people people aren't uh, you know, I think as a fraudster, you'd have to like assume that people just aren't paying that close attention. 
Yeah. Right. And so he's like, yeah, on paper, we can uh, hold 150% of the total available inventory and nobody's going to, nobody's going to check. Nobody's going to, you know, run over to the department of agriculture. Like, excuse me. Uh, do you have the latest uh, inventory reports on soybean oil? Right. It's like nobody does that. So, right. yeah, I, my hunch is that he probably didn't know, but he also probably wasn't thinking about right. it because no one was thinking. Right. About it. Well, and and, and I, I'm sure you know this, but the whole the, like the con man, the expression a con man, con yeah. is short for a confidence man. Confidence. And yes. Tina, and, yeah. I, and, and I guess in my mind, when I try to play this story is it's like Tina goes, yeah, I have 1.8 billion pounds of soybean oil and, and, and I got it certified and it's all bullshit. Later they go, dude, you said you had more than was in the entire United States. And he's like, I did what? And they believed it. Oh my gosh. I'm a genius. That's, I yeah. feel like that's, that's more the, the uh, attitude of uh, the right. what I, what I would expect from a Tino DeAngelis. Absolutely. So that's, that's what he did. That's the magic trick he did with his soybean oil. But then the next question, obviously Caleb is how did, because yes. the reason we know about it is it fell apart. Of course. The weird thing is, I mean, we're talking about a case that happened 60 years ago and uh, yeah. and, and and I don't know if investigative journalism then wasn't what it is today or if it's just people didn't care a whole lot about how it was discovered, just that it was discovered. But there was two – we found two different explanations for how the salad oil magic trick was uncovered. The first one, and I really like this one a lot – was that the the because we were saying that the the salad oil prices were were being propped up with the expectation that the Soviet Union would open their markets to start buying Western soybean oil that right. never actually happened. So because of right. that, there was this expected demand, and we we all know that that the that markets, commodity markets, as well as all the other you know, stock markets that they, the, the current prices are based on future expectations. So once that future, mm-hmm. so, so there was the, the higher, the prices were higher because they thought this was going to happen. It didn't happen. So that tanked the prices. So then instead of being able to buy low and sell high, they had, because the, the futures were pegged at this one particular price, they had to buy high. They, well, they just couldn't, they couldn't, I guess they probably just didn't exercise their future contracts because they would have to buy higher than they could sell it. And that that ended up making in, investors scared. So investors who had invested mm-hmm. in soybean oil thinking this was going to happen started saying, hey, I need I I want to, I want out of the soybean market. So then all of a sudden that whole thing collapsed and made Ally go, Oh, yeah, so you need to buy some of our 1.8 billion ga- uh, pounds of soybean oil. Guess what? We don't even have five percent of that in reality so ta-da and that was that's <laughs> then that's how they got uh found out that's and i and i like that story i don't know why i like that story right. so much but it's just I, no you know what i think i do know why i like that story caleb the re- tell us the Greg. reason why is because that makes me believe that if the if the soviet union did in fact open their markets the way that everyone expected them to open their markets, that yep. then Tino would have been able to execute his whole plan with all of his fake soybean oil. He wouldn't be able to make a butt ton of money. He would have been able to mm-hmm. pay off all his loan loans, and he would have still had enough money to you know skip and whistle his way to the bank and be like, "Did it? Nailed it!" Because if you can pay back your loan, because all all the fake oil was doing was giving him collateral to get loans. If you can mm-hmm. repay the loans that were given to you on fake collateral, then you can even say nobody was hurt in the process. Uh, I did it and I made money. Hip, hip, hooray. And that's and right. that's the end. So, Greg? Yes. Theory number two. Well, it's not a theory, but the, 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 the other way, the other way it unraveled was... Whistleblowers. Somebody, oh, somebody was like, hey, great. we think that there's a lot of water... At the bottom of these uh, salad oil uh, vats, go check it out closer. And so uh, the American Express investigators like, oh, maybe we should uh, go do that. And they did, and they they found it. And you found something yeah. about some bankrupt, like a quote from a bankruptcy proceeding. Yeah, during during it was 
there was some testimony again from the American Express, the guy who used to run American Express back then. He said that there were questions about Allied Crude Vegetable Oil Incorporated Limited Partnership. There were there were questions kind of floating around about this business amongst banks and then even a couple of I guess there were a couple of American Express executives who were former FBI employees and they were kind of oh. you know asking questions about it but uh nothing was done except for these audits that you mentioned and during one such audit this was in this old New York Times article I found Ally Crude threatened to quit doing business with the with their warehousing division <laughs> over like during one of these audits oh. and I think that's one of those things where you and I have talked in the past where it's just like when people get real defensive about you, like, like an, like an auditor just doing their job, yeah, basically, yeah. you can take that as a pretty big red yeah. flag when somebody's like, Hey, I'm not going to do business with you anymore. If you keep, you know, throwing these auditors at me, like, what is right. this? And it's like, this is kind of the normal course of business. Yeah. So I don't care. Like, this is what you can't just trust me. Right. It's like, well, no, sir. That's what audit. That's the exactly. Exactly. I'm never doing business with you ever. We didn't again. pay you to ask probing questions about our inventory when we paid right. you to audit our inventory. Yeah. Get the get the hell out of here. So Right, right. Yeah. If if that's how someone reacts, then maybe you should, you know, contact the authorities. Yep, exactly. So one one of those two scenarios, or possibly a combination, I, I you know, knowing history well enough, likely it was a combination of those two things that ended up, uh, you know, tightening the noose around Tino DeAngelis and the uh, Allied Crude Vegetable Oil Refining Company uh, LLC. So here's here's the that the fallout of all that. Allied declared bankruptcy on November 19th, 1963. American Express, their stock dropped by 50% as a result of all this stuff coming out. And I think, Caleb, the reason why, because American Express, they didn't loan the money to Allied. They gave the warehouse receipts. But my understanding is that American Express's stock tanked is similar to like what happened with Arthur Anderson, where people were just like, yeah. you did this. That's a huge oversight. Right. We can't trust your business at all. Yeah. Like a lack of confidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, and a weird side note of that whole thing. So American Express, they they tanked by 50%. A young, young-ish Warren Buffett swept in and bought a 5% stake in American Express when it was priced at its lowest. And his 5% stake in American Express increased 10 times its value in 10 years. So he made a 100% return every year for 10 years is what happened to Mr. Buffett. And that's uh, th- and that brings uh, Nebraska back into the good graces of the United States, despite the Nebraska Accounting Institute and its uncredited uh, standing within the accounting world. Understandable. So the other thing, and this is, I think this is a wild footnote of this story, yep. is that there was two different investment houses that had loaned a bunch of money to Allied mm-hmm. based on the warehouse receipts from Amex. And obviously, once all of the collateral disappeared and once Allied declared bankruptcy, these two investment brokers were were screwed beyond screwed. One of them was smaller, and the New York Stock Exchange apparently had a little bit of time to figure out something to prop them up or to solve their their problem. The other one was much bigger and a much more it, it was kind of an intractable problem that that second investment broker brokerage would not crumble and and it, and it, it's kind of in my mind reading through this I had a lot of flashbacks to like Lehman Brothers where it was like yeah. it was this one investment company but if they crumbled that would that could topple the entire stock exchange and kind of a domino effect on top of that so everybody's just stressed out going what's going to happen when this bigger investment brokerage when it comes out that they're that tons of their loans are being defaulted on right now and so they so the news was supposed to break 
on November 22nd, 1963. So if you know your history, or if you're my mom, you know that it was November 22nd, 1963 at 1.41 p.m. that President John F. Kennedy was shot and died. And so because of that, everyone freaked out for a much bigger reason than some random investment broker having bad loans to the point where they actually closed the markets on November 22nd, 1963. And they didn't open them up again until November 26th, 1963. And that gave the, and, and basically that just there there was it was a bigger problem for the markets than what happened with this bank and so it kind of went unnoticed that this investment brokerage house had all these bad loans cuz they had much more traumatic problems in the United States that just happened to happen on the exact same day that the shit was going to hit the fan for mm. the uh salad oil scandal mm. crazy you have to you have to wonder Oliver Stone probably has something to say. Yeah, well, I think that something that was missing from the JFK movie starring Kevin Costner was they never said that Tino DeAngelis was one of the suspects for murdering. In the massive conspiracy. I know. It went all the way. Perpetrated by the CIA. And the salad oil uh, and big salad oil. So... Must have been a Cuban connection. Yep, it was. So here's some other. Some, so Greg, so yes, Greg. yes, Caleb. <laughs> it's quite a tale. It's quite a tale. Yeah, this this salad oil scandal. Yep. No wonder it's infamous. Yeah, no wonder for sure it's infamous. So okay, so um, Warren Buffett and assassinations aside, what happened to Tino? Uh, so in 1965, Tino DeAngelis was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Uh, and again, this this is you know par for the course with so many white collar crimes. He was released on parole after seven years, so he served a third of his oh. of his prison sentence before he got out. So he was so he was sentenced in 1965, got out in seven years. So that was 72, and then he promptly started a Midwest cattle based Ponzi scheme. <laughs> That fell apart rather quickly. <laughs> so he went back to jail in 1980 for his for his cow Ponzi scheme. He was released from that in 1983. But wait, he was sent back to jail for even more fraud in 1993. That was only for 21 months, so not even two years. So that's why I, I couldn't even figure out what that fraud was, just that he went back to jail for more fraud for almost two years. Uh, and then... He died in 2009 at the age of 19 of, of 1993. Gosh, I'm the worst. 1963. 1973. No, he died in 2009 at the age of 93. And it looks like he maybe didn't commit fraud for the last 14 16. years of his life. All right. So, All right. Yeah. So 95, if he got out in 95. Yeah. If he got out in 95 and that. died in 2009. 14, 14 years a clean man when he probably was too old to. Well, you know, yeah, you know, from 79 to 93, I mean, yeah, it's time to take time, it easy. Yeah. yeah, you're done. You've done enough. You've done enough. Take yeah, it, you've, take you've it you've easy in, in your fraud retirement home, Tino DeAngelis. <laughs> maybe it was one of those, maybe it was one of those uh, Four Seasons homes. So, Greg, did we learn anything? I, I think that there's there's plenty of lessons to okay. learn from from this fraud. Okay. And so, if you are an inspire an, an aspiring fraudster, one of the things you could learn from the salad oil scandal of the 1960s is that government contracts and government programs are a great place to commit fraud. We we've talked about that before about the PPP program. During the pandemic, great place to commit fraud if you want to commit fraud. Indeed. And, and we saw with this guy, he did it once with the National School Lunch Program. He did it a second time with the uh, with the food, food for, what was it? Food for Peace Program. Food for Peace. After World War II. And, and, yep. and, and some evidence that government programs are such a, such a fertile field for fraud 
is that that there's a there's a thing it's called the the DCAA the 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 defense contractor audit agency something like that I I don't know yep is that what it is oh do we need to look this God, up we do defense contract audit agency it is ding 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 yes. survey says founded January eighth nineteen sixty five yeah I, yeah I knew it was established in nineteen sixty five which is I don't I think that that's a coincidence I don't because these weren't defense contracts that DeAngelis was doing but it was established shortly after the salad oil stuff happened and if nothing else yep. and I actually knew a couple of guys I think I went to school with a couple of guys who ended up working for the DCAA and the fact that you need an agency to perform the audits for Department of Defense, because that's specifically for defense contracts, not for all government yep. contracts. But the fact that yep. you have to have an agency to audit people who have Department of Defense contracts that just shows, oh, because there's just a, a lot of fraud going on with those government contracts. So if, you know, I, I think one of the things I've heard in business in general is if you want to have a safe business, if you want to minimize the risk of your business, get government contracts. But also if you want to commit fraud, try getting some government contracts as well. Some nice rules of thumb. Yeah. Cause, cause you know, if, because really we want our listener base to be people who are going, going out to commit fraud. Although that's, I want to say that's true for a lot of like true crime podcasts is that if yeah. you wanted to be a murderer and get away with it. Listen to some true crime podcasts. And you listen, yeah, listen to some true exactly. crime. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So what else did we learn, Greg? Um, we, well, we did learn one of the things that was reinforced is the fact that the biggest source of fraud detection by a huge margin is most frauds are, de are detected by a tip from a whistleblower. Right. So we know, again, it wasn't entirely clear how this house of cards fell over, but it likely a tip at least played a part in that. But what's weird. So even though tips are the biggest source of detection for frauds, and even though best practice says that every organization should have a fraud hotline. And, and I, I have to say, according to the data uh, provided by the ACFE, most organizations do have fraud hotlines, but still it's about a third of organizations that don't have a fraud hotline. So if you want to right. protect yourself from fraud, give people a, an anonymous and easy way to report stuff. That's an easy lesson to, to learn about fraud. Get yourself a fraud hotline. There's, there's companies you can outsource that where there's basically yep. companies that just do that for you. They give you a number and you put it in your employee handbook and boom, you got yourself a fraud hotline. Do it. It's easy. Not hard. Not at all. Not hard. Not at all. Some of the other things in terms of how this could have been discovered, one of them, one of the things we mentioned was that the that American Express they they audited Tino's inventory on a regular scheduled basis, and surprise audits are that's another internal control that you can put in your business, and and obviously that's a surprise internal audit which. Tino was not interested in surprise inter internal audits at all, but ex but that's the other thing. External auditors do have a requirement to include an element of surprise in their audits. And Caleb, you, you, what you didn't do, what you did, like maybe a couple of inventory audits. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't do a ton in in my in my brief my brief stint as a external auditor. I didn't do a lot of inventory accounts. I did a couple. I can think of, and I just remember, and we were doing just the year end counts. It wasn't, it wasn't a surprise. Okay. It wasn't a surprise count or, a, or an unscheduled. Count, so you whatever. failed, you failed the PCAOB requirements. Well, I think it's possible, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but honestly, I don't know because we weren't, they, they may have some, another team of young auditors may have performed the surprise counts. Right. I don't know, but I do remember seeing like elements of either unscheduled counts or surprise counts as right. part of the, is uh, as part of the audit right. program, I, you know, part of the chat. I like to think that there's like a special, like, like a special ops, uh, audit, uh, team that. <laughs> <laughs> that like yeah. you know like like uh, dressed in all black and ski masks that like repel like kicks in a window in the top of the warehouse right. and repels down to to test the the vats of salad right. oil and the, and they're just yeah and they're just in there and they're just, they're counting widgets right <laughs> right exactly shake that shake that open that box up make sure that there's actually right. 
that there there's actually pencils inside there. Okay, the counting sun. Let's get right, out of here. Right. So, um, so surprise audits. That that's a bit. That's a big deal. External auditors yep. need to do that. And it's and again, I well, and that's the other thing we. T- but interestingly enough, though, yeah. Greg, the external auditors did not really play a role in this fraud. It wasn't no. like clear to, because Tino's business was not a public company, right? Right. So. To the extent that external auditors play a role, it isn't, at least in the research that we we did, it isn't clear to me, if any, that the external auditors played a right. role. Although I would want to say, so So even though the American Express Field Warehouse Division wasn't a, a external auditor in terms of what we think of like CPA firm yes. audits, they still were doing a, a service that was very much analogous to, to inventory right. audits. If not the right. exact, the, providing the exact same service, just from a different angle in terms of why yep. why it was needed. So, so I'd fair yeah, enough. So I say you're right, but uh, I also say it doesn't matter because it was the same fucking job. <laughs> so do duly do noted. It. Do it, American. Now Express. fuck off. But, but the other thing, but it was weird. They just, I mean, it very, it was very clear that that was a new division, and it probably yep. wasn't regulated like public accounting is, and they might have not sure. figured that out yet. So. So yeah, so there's that. Some other things that I think are just some interesting side notes of this. According to the ACFE, the American uh, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, they just put out their brand new report to the nation for 2022. And in that, they list that 5% of occupational frauds, this, this fraud is not technically an occupational fraud. Occupational fraud is when mm-hmm. you basically, you're in the company and you steal from the company. In this one, it was Allied who was stealing from, from brokerage houses on fake loans. So it wasn't technically occupational fraud but it was a fraud but i think that these that these uh this data would would carry to the type of fraud we're looking at with allied five percent of frauds are detected by accident i would say that that's you know there there's a there's an element of that that could be seen in the allied case four percent are detected by external auditors, which would be like the American Express Field Warehousing Division. 1% are detected by other, which is just something else. But the ACFE's 2022 report to the nations is strangely silent regarding the percentage of frauds that were discovered by the Soviets not opening their soybean oil market to the West. I don't know why they overlooked that, but they did. And clearly that's something that they need to do more research into, in my opinion. Noted. And then just a couple things about Tino DeAngelis. Um, Over 20% of frauds are committed by either an owner or an executive. And obviously that's where Tino is. That's, uh, which which you kind of go okay that makes sense but but what you have to realize is that 23% of the workforce are not owners or executives probably closer to 1% of your workforce is owner or executive so owners and executives mm-hmm. they they perpetrate a, a way a oversized amount of fraud compared to their representation in the general population and another interesting fact is that 6% of perpetrators of frauds have prior fraud related convictions. And if we look at Tino DeAngelis, he committed fraud with his, his meat, his substandard uninspected meat thing uh, before <laughs> the salad oil situation. And then he also right. had, and then he, he was, and then he did a cattle Ponzi scheme afterwards. And there's some cattle, there's a cattle Ponzi then, scheme to follow that up. And then another up. random, less uh, interesting, apparently fraud, even after that. So the guy, he, but, but perhaps not food related. So a huge red flag of fraud is, did you do it before? You right. might do it again. The other thing that's crazy about 6% of perpetrating traders having a prior fraud with who's hiring, who's doing the high, it should be 0% of your employees <laughs> should have prior fraud related <laughs> convictions. Stop hiring these people who are stealing from their companies or who are committing frauds because that's a, that seems like just well, to be fair, Greg, yeah. to be fair, yeah. this Tino, then the Tino DeAngelis situation, he was just starting businesses. True. Right. True. So nobody's nobody, maybe, you know, the businesses, if you've, if you've been turned away several times for job opportunities and you think, huh, maybe that past fraud is what is, 
hindering my job search. Maybe I'll just start a business and start another fraud. <laughs> I don't know. That's it. Like, I mean, that seems to be, there seems, there's definitely a pattern of behavior yeah. in this yeah. case. And so, um, but yeah, I think that he would, I mean, again, this is an occupation, these, these, these stats are from an occupational fraud survey, right? Yes. But I think you're right to point out that they probably, I mean, I don't know, uh, maybe my, I'm, I'm no statistician, but it kind of tracks to think it's like people in positions of like, he was running a business, he was the owner of the business yeah. and he perpetrated the fraud. So yeah, tracks. Yeah. That's what I'm Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. And, and likely he didn't commit any frauds for the last 14 years of his life because he was probably under a lot of scrutiny at that point, you know, by, by the authorities. This is, is Maybe my not. guess. Right. Maybe not to, so he doesn't die in prison or something. All right, that's it for this episode. Remember, people, inventory audits are conducted by the dumbest and least experienced CPAs in any firm. And also remember, if you're a magician, that the real money is in loan fraud. If you want to drop us a line, uh, please send us an email to ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, where can people find you if they want to continue the discussion about salad oil and or fraud? On Twitter, at CNewquist, and LinkedIn, my full name, Caleb Newquist. Greg, where are you? I am on also on Twitter, at Greg Kite, and I'm on LinkedIn, at Greg Kite CPA. So I'd love uh, love to connect with uh, anybody who wants to on those two platforms. Oh My Fraud is written by me, Caleb Newquist, and Greg Kite. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh, my fraud. fraud.